So if you want to have a look at your, there's two sheets on your, on your table, on your seat. Uh, the second one has the Bible verses. So if you want to have a little look there, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Let's read God's word together. We're going to base our teaching on this, on this passage. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms for those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together uh, to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder, murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This is part of our series that we've been looking at through the book of Acts called Advancing the Gospel. And, and today, what I want to show you, I want to show you through this text, how the Spirit of God and the Word of God builds the people of God. We're actually going to take it in a slightly different order. The Word of God and the Spirit of God builds the people of God. And uh, as we've been saying every week, and um, we're, getting, we're, we're getting our cue from the Scriptures here, at Foundation Church, we are a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission. And this is where it comes from. This is, it, we've seen the seeds growing already in chapters one. We've seen Pentecost in chapter two. And we're coming now to seeing it being fleshed out more and more as the spirit and the word build the people of God. So first of all, I want to show you, number one, how the word of God 
works, how the word of God builds the people of God. Um, So we've just been reading together from chapter three and the occasion, the moment that we've just covered is of course the healing of this man who was lame, lame from birth, Um, tells us later on in the scriptures that he was 40 years old or even in his 40s and he was healed. He was healed. He used to be uh, brought to the temple every day, it says. He was laid down so that he could, you know, he could beg. He could, he could get money from the worshippers as they went up to the temple. It's a good place to go because worshippers generally are religious people. Uh, they're aware of their duties before God. And so you probably make a good income, a good living by being there. And it was their duty to, to give to the poor. So that's what happened. So Peter and John, it says, were off to the temple to pray. Remember, that's part of the the rhythm of the community that we saw last week, you know, devoted to prayer. So there they were, off to pray in the temple. And this man was there, and and Peter and John looked at them intently uh, and said to him, look, we don't don't have any money, no gold or silver in these pockets, but what I do have, says Peter, I I will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he says, rise up and walk. And, And Luke records that immediately... The man stood up. They helped him up. His ankles strengthened. His, his legs had power. And suddenly, he was able to not only stand, not only balance and walk, but actually walking, leaping, praising God, leaping in the air. The healing that he received was immediate. It was complete. Total healing. And those who, who were around, who would have seen this, you know, maybe the worshippers going up to the temple to pray themselves, it says they were filled, in verse 10, filled with awe wonder and amazement and we saw that again last week one of the marks of a spirit-filled community is that it's awe-inspiring and we see that here don't we again wonder and amazement at what god is doing among us but what we're going to do rather than look at the details of the healings in and of itself we're going to focus on peter's sermon which came afterwards and that was uh, really starting at verse 11 through to verse 21 because it's rather like the day of pentecost a few weeks ago We had this amazing sign, we had the falling of the the fire and tongues and all that stuff and people speaking in tongues. But the sign itself wasn't wasn't enough or rather it it was sort of open to interpretation. Peter had to get up and give give an an account, that's probably Paul, give an account of what was going on. So we're going to focus on the sermon. What a great opportunity it was for Peter to speak. And his point was this. When you're looking at this man who was healed, who was lame and is now leaping and jumping and praising God, Peter says, it's not us that's healed this man. It's not our power. It's not our religiousness. It's not our perfections. It is Jesus. It is him. Peter wanted to be explicit. He didn't want to be famous for signs. He didn't want to be famous for good works. I want you to know, says Peter, to the crowd, that it's all about Jesus. It is him that should receive prayer, praise rather, and adoration, not us. And and right here at the start of the sermon, I guess let's just jump straight in and, and think about how that might apply for us as a church going forward. We have big plans, we have big hopes, we have big dreams about what we can do, options to serve, options to do good works, and yet at the end of the day, we want to be all about Jesus. We don't want people to look at us and say, Hey, aren't those guys great? Aren't they serving the community? Aren't they doing lots of charitable work? Yes, we hope that that's what we'll be doing. But we as a church want to respond and say, it's not about us. We're doing this because of Jesus. It's his power that is changing people, not us. We are a church that is gospel-centered. Let's examine then the, the details of what Peter says. 
Verse 13, this is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. It is him that has done this. What does that mean? These terms, he's using established language to remind the people and say to the people that this God that is acting, this power that you see in front of you is, is, is the God of old. It is the God of your fathers. This is not a new God. This is not a new religion that we're starting. This is Yahweh. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the rest. It is the same God. It is your God. It is our God. It is the ancient God of Israel that is at work today. And it's this God who made a promise to bless Abraham and his descendants. And we see that, he goes on to say, when he raised up Jesus to be a blessing to all people. God raised up Jesus, he goes on to say, he's a servant of God. God glorified his servant Jesus. But then Peter says, you denied him. You chose death for him rather than life. You chose to take evil over goodness. See down there in verse, um, towards the end of verse 13, you know, uh, you delivered over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Remember, the Gospels tell the story about how Pilate couldn't make up his mind and he knew Jesus was innocent, but he wanted to please the crowd. So he had the, the murderer, Barabbas, one side. He had Jesus, the son of God, the other side. And he said to the crowd, which one do you want me to release? And they shouted, Barabbas. And so they got their murdering insurrectionist back and Jesus, who had never sinned in his life, was taken off to be crucified. You chose evil over goodness, says Peter to the crowd. Look at that one at the end there. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. Isn't that just irony? Irony of ironies. Yet God raised him up, and of this we are witnesses. It's this God that is healing this man. That's Peter's point. But in verse 16, look, his name, it is his name. It is faith in his name that has made this man strong. It is the faith that is through Jesus. It is his name. That is who has made this man well. You know, when I was a younger Christian, I, used to, I, hear, I heard this sort of thing here, and we talk about the name of God and the name of Jesus and that your name. And I, 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 I honestly thought that it was the name of Jesus that we were talking about, as if it was some sort of you know, magic term or some sort of phrase that you could use. Um, a code word. Maybe whisper the magic word, and then you could get results. See, in my mind, at that time in my life, I detached the name from the person who owned the name. But instead, and that's not what Peter is saying when he says this name, and by faith in his name, has made this man well. He's not saying that there's some sort of hidden mystery code that we have to learn, or there's something special about the, uh, you know, the actual word of the title. The issue is that it reflects the person whose name is born. And we kind of get this in, in, in uh, ordinary life, you know? We might say, uh, for example, in day-to-day -day life, that person there has a good name, you know? We don't, we don't mean, when I say Paul has a good name, I don't mean the name Paul is good as if the name Paul is better than anyone else's name, but we're referring to the person. We're saying he has a good reputation. He's a, he's a man of conviction, a man of upstanding quality. You know, he has a good name. Or we might say that someone else is, is trying to make a name for themselves. It's not like I'm, if I'm trying to make a name for myself, I'm not going to the name factory and choosing a name and then putting it 
on my birth certificate. I'm making a name, I'm trying to boost my reputation or I'm trying to, you know, be famous or something. That's what we say when someone's making a name. And so when Peter says it is this name and by faith in the name, we're talking about the one who stands behind the name, the one who the name reflects and talks about. And that's why when we see in this passage, it's actually amazing, you can count it up and, and, and the actual story continues into chapter 4 and we're going to refer to it a little bit but there are so many names in this passage you've maybe picked a few up already Uh, for example in verse 6 the name Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth Jesus of Nazareth the humble hometown and yet he's the Christ he's the uh, the servant of God where's that in there somewhere yeah 13 glorified his servants so jesus christ of nazareth he's the servant of god he's the holy one he's the righteous one he's the author of life he's the christ he's the one the prophet spoke of later on in chapter 4 he's the cornerstone which is the most important stone in the whole structure all of these things are jesus they're all his names and peter says later on there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved And it's in his name, in in the name of Jesus, that this man has been given perfect health. There is power in the name of Jesus. And this builds our faith. It builds my faith anyway. Stirs us. Because we start to think of ourselves, what what can Jesus do today? There's power in the name of Jesus right there. And Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still with us by his spirit. Then what what can he do today? In his name. Peter speaks the word of God to the crowds who see this healing. He speaks the gospel of Jesus. But then he calls them to respond in verse 19. He says to them, uh, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins might be blotted out. That was the text that we started this service with uh, this evening. Repent, turn to God and have your sins blotted out so that times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord and await Jesus to return and restore all things. This idea of the sins being blotted out carries with it the the thought of a a list or a a ledger or a book or something where your your sins would have been written, so to speak, in a book recorded in heaven by God. 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 God knew all of your sins and they've been recorded. And yet... The offer of the gospel is right there. If you, if you come to Jesus, if you turn your life around to him, if you give your life to him, your sins, which are many, as are mine, as is everyone else's in this room, your sins, which are many, will be blotted out. They will be wiped away. They will be expunged from your record. The record of sin against you before a holy God is very long indeed. And yet, if you turn your life around to Jesus, and that's a gift, by the way, but if you turn to Jesus, your record will be completely blotted out. It will be no more. Your sins will no longer exist in the eyes of God. That's the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. I love this next bit. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Sins blotted away, gone forever. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
Who needs times of refreshment from the presence of the Lord right now? I know I do. Deep, thirst-quenching refreshment from the presence of the Lord. It's yours when you come to Christ. You can actually taste your kingdom come. You can taste it. Times of refreshment. We'll think about that in a little while in the future. A few, a few weeks ago, uh, I made this statement uh, and uh, stands for today as well. It was characteristic of the early church. One of the, one of the reasons behind its continual progressive growth across the kingdom, or rather across the, uh, the Roman Empire, was that the early believers believed the gospel so much so that it was the bedrock of everything else they did. They were so utterly convinced that the gospel was true. That was one of the main reasons why the gospel spread as quickly as it did in the first three centuries of the Christian church. It went everywhere because of this rock-solid conviction that the gospel isn't just good or nice or right, but it's true. People were willingly giving their lives, laying down their lives because the gospel is true and that is all there is to it. And so for us as a church, for us at Foundation Church to see significant advancement of the gospel, it would be a good idea for us to share this rock-solid conviction, wouldn't it, of the gospel? It'd be good for us to think that this is more than just a good idea or something that religious people get excited about. If this is not completely and utterly and historically true, then we may as well just pack up and go home. Because what, what are we offering? What do we have? We have nothing. And that is why, as a church, we are gospel-centered. And so my question to you, before we move on, my question to you is, are you convinced that the gospel is true? Because there's no point for us as a church going any further unless we are convinced that the good news is true. If, if it doesn't occupy a centrality in our own lives and in our church, then we may as well just pack up and go home. Now, that doesn't mean to say, folks, by the way, that there's no room for questioning or there's no room for, for thinking and asking and pondering and pushing in to, to doubts and fears. That's all to be accepted and, and embraced and that's what we, we all do and we, we need each other to, to get through those things. That doesn't also mean that we have to possess exhaustive knowledge of the gospel. Like we've had to read every book that's ever been written about the gospel and know every theologi theological thing about the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. But for us to go anywhere as a church, we have to believe the gospel is true to our most inner and deepest being. Yes, we grow into it. Yes, we deepen into it. Yes, we increase in our love for it. But the question is, are you convinced that the gospel is true? Maybe, uh, yeah, you say, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. I think the gospel's true. Um, perhaps particularly if you've grown up in, a, in, a, in the church, uh, you're familiar with the gospel, you're familiar with gospel presentations, gospel diagrams, that kind of thing. And perhaps sometimes you think, yeah, I get the gospel, but I, I want more. I get the gospel, but there's, there's, surely there's more to Christianity than just that. And the answer is yes and no. 
Because here at Foundation Church and, and many, many churches like us, uh, we believe are faithful to the Bible, we never, we never move on from the gospel. It, it, it is not something that we just get to, to learn and then, and then we go on to other things, deeper things. The gospel is, 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 uh, is, is where we start, it's where we finish, it is what sustains us, is what takes us through, is what causes growth within us, is what makes more, our, more, us more like Jesus, it is what we offer to people. It's the gospel. And so yes, we go deeper, yes, we go further. Everything we do will be tied in. That's why we are gospel-centered. Because as we go on, we will see Christ together as more wonderful, more glorious, more beautiful, The gospel is, is more than just a diagram that you draw on the back of a, a napkin. The gospel is so much more. In fact, Peter points in that direction. Look, look with me at uh, uh, verse 21. You know, he's, he's explaining the gospel. He's saying, repent, your sins may be blotted out. Many people just stop there. That's the gospel, you know? Repent, your sins will be... No, time of refreshment may come from the presence of the Lord. He's talking about an active, ongoing, life-giving presence that you will receive, and that's not even it, because we are waiting... For Christ to come and restore all things which God spoke about through the prophets. You see, there is, there is much more to the gospel. It's not a story that's finished. It carries on and on and on. The gospel is personal, but it's cosmic. Restoration of all things. It is deep and it is wide. The gospel is individual and it affects the entire humanity. So my question to you, particularly if you're a believer and you've been a believer for a while, is how are you doing in developing a growing love and devotion and understanding of the gospel? Uh, from time to time, I give out books. I talk about uh, titles, maybe share the old blog post. Folks, these aren't just fillers. They're not just like stocking fillers and you get the main present later. These are all uh, designed and, and I hope uh, will help to just deepen your love and desire for Jesus more and more. So take and read, please. So, we've seen how the Word of God does its work. Spirit of God, next. The Word of God and the Spirit of God works together. And I've mentioned it already uh, this evening, but don't forget, we're in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 2, the one just before it, uh, we have seen the day of Pentecost described in amazing detail the outpouring of the spirit remember that the coming of the new age the promise of the father and you know on that day three thousand people on average roughly gave themselves to jesus were baptized received forgiveness of sins and the, the gift of the holy spirit and so we just come out of this uh, amazing account of of pentecost right into chapter three and we see this lame man being healed and it's interesting, isn't it? This is the first specific thing that happens after Pentecost. Yeah, there's a bit of a summary about community that we saw last week. But this is the first specific event that happens after Pentecost. And it highlights something of what it looks like to be a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered church on mission. It's as if Luke is saying, here is one awesome example of what it can look like for you. Did you notice uh, when, we, when we read the account of the man who was healed, Peter looked directly at him. He, he, he just stopped and directed his gaze at him, as did John in verse 4, and said, look at us. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
Do you notice what didn't happen? There was no prayer. There was no wishful thinking. It was just like a look and then a command. Up you get in the name of Jesus. And up he got. Quick as that. Just a command. Immediately, his feet and ankles grew strong. And the question that I have when I read this, and maybe you share this with me, is how did Peter and John know this would work? How did they come with such a deep level of conviction that what they say is actually about to happen? Because it's a heck of a risk, isn't it? If you just happen to stop on the way to church and you, and you say to someone, right, you know, uh, this crippled person here, get up in the name of Jesus and it doesn't work, you're going to look like an idiot. Aren't you? Maybe that's what you think. Maybe that's what was going through their mind. Maybe they were going around saying it to everyone and it just happened to be this one guy, it popped, it worked, and suddenly up he got. But that's nothing, uh, none of that in the narrative, is there? None of that in the story. It just says that they're on their way to the temple to pray. And it seems to be they had this sudden and undeniable sense that this man who is looking for money and nothing more was to be healed in front of everyone publicly, demonstrably, dramatically. What's going on? Where did this come from? It doesn't make it clear in here that there's no terminology given, but the Apostle Paul, later on in the Scripture, talks about the gift of faith. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 13, verse 2, the gift of faith. It's a gift of the Spirit given to the church, and it is distinct, in some ways, from general faith. General faith, we might understand it as that faith in Jesus. Sometimes we call it saving faith. Faith in Jesus to believe the promises of the gospel, to give ourselves to him and be saved. That's saving faith. That's general faith. But Paul, the apostle, and I think we see it here too, seems to have a special gift of faith in addition to special faith or saving faith, whatever you call it the gift of faith. It's not different. It's through the same person, Jesus. But it just seems to come in this intensified, heightened form with a specific circumstance in mind. The gift of faith, the scripture seems to teach, is that someone has and possesses an absolute certainty that God will act in a certain way. Faith beyond the ordinary, faith beyond what they ordinarily experience so sure that they are able to make a bold declaration to the effect that you will be healed. And most often the gift of faith is linked to the gift of healing. The gift of faith is occasional. It just happens every now and again. It's not like people possess it all the time. Some people possess the gift of faith. Many do not. Sometimes that faith is for a specific healing. Sometimes that faith is another circumstance where the gospel is advanced but it is a distinct gift that builds the church. As one pastor put it, when the tide of faith rises, so many other boats rise with it. The gift of faith. And I suspect that is what is going on. That is why they looked at him and had the absolute, complete confidence that this man was going to be healed there and then. I put it before you. Uh, the gift of faith is not an end in itself. Because Peter, as we see, preached to the crowd. He pointed to Jesus. He pointed to the one whose power made this man well. But we can start to see here how the Holy Spirit sets this whole thing up. The Spirit granted faith to Peter and John. The Spirit healed the man so that he stood up. The Spirit 
gave Peter the ability to make a bold proclamation. And it finishes uh, in chapter 4 with another 2,000 people coming to faith in Jesus. The Spirit brought people to Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the story. Not faith, not the gift, not the, the miracle, not the, the, not the apostles. It was Jesus. It was his name that was lifted up. Something that Paul and John were clearly desperate to point out in their sermon. Can you see, starting to see how the Spirit and the Word work together to advance the gospel powerfully? We can't, we can't separate the two. It's the message of Jesus and it's the Spirit of Jesus working together. And, and let's, just, let's just let this be encouraging to us uh, as a church. Um, later, later on, it's not on your sheet, later on in the story, uh, not only did um, uh, 2,000 people come to faith in Jesus following the preaching of Paul, that was just, sorry, Peter, that we've just been reading about, but Peter and John were then hauled in front of the, the council, uh, fill up with, with all the uh, religious hierarchy, the high priests and all these scholars and scribes and, and rulers. And they were, they were brought in front of the council to give account for, for, for all this, all this uh, speak of Jesus of Nazareth and the power of the name and all that. But it says in chapter 4, 13, you don't have this. When they saw, when the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men. Can you see what the Holy Spirit did to these uneducated and common men? Gave them power. People were astonished at their words. You've maybe heard the term um, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is kind of a modern term, but it's this, this sort of uh, nagging doubt that many people carry around with them that one day, one day, someone's going to find me out. And one day they're going to realize I actually don't know what I'm talking about. And I've just been blagging my whole life. That's imposter syndrome. And people, uh, it's kind of a funny thing really, but people have this. And um, the idea is that one day they, they feel like they will be exposed. The people will just get the read on them. They'll know they're just messing around. They don't really, you know, they're not really into it. Underlying, you know, imposter syndrome is a, is a fear is a fear that I, I, I actually lack the convictions that I'm talking about. Or a fear that I'm just, I'm just saying the lines, but actually I don't really believe it in my heart. But when we look at how the Spirit works through ordinary, uneducated people like Peter and John, surely that should give us great faith and encouragement. Don't forget Acts. The book of Acts is not just a nice story. It is a narrative given to us for today because Luke wants us to connect the dots between what we're reading and where we are today. He wants us to have the confidence concerning the things that we've been taught. He wants to show us that the gifts that have been given to the church to build it up continue today to point people to Jesus. And yes, today we are in different circumstances. Yes, different politics to the ancient Near East. Different history, different culture, different sociologically, all these things. But, of course, it's the same God. It is the same message of the gospel. It is the same Lord. It is the same name above all names. It is the same Spirit. And there is no sign of this stopping today. 
And so we can live with the ongoing expectation that times, as it says, times of refreshment may come from the presence of the Lord. And so as a community, here at Foundation, let's, let's open ourselves to the promise of the Father. Let's listen to what he is saying. Let's, let's receive the gift of the Spirit. Perhaps you need to understand, first of all, what that's all about. Maybe you need to use your mind to engage with the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe you need to read up on that. And there are plenty of books that I've been uh, getting through myself. Um, that I'm very happy to, to um, recommend to you on that subject. Um, plenty of us for us to, to learn and grow into. Maybe, maybe you generally agree um, that the Holy Spirit is, is present and active and al- alive and, and working through the church, but you haven't really sort of uh, opened yourself, so to speak. You haven't really asked uh, for him to work through. You haven't really prayed uh, to be renewed or refreshed in the Spirit like it talks about here. And so we'll do that together at the end um, as, we, as we close out. So we've thought about the, uh, the Word of God, thought about the Spirit of God giving this sort of conviction, uh, the healing, you know, the, the, the boldness to get up and preach. And finally, we'll look at the people of God before we close, how the Word and the Spirit build the people of God. Let's return back to those words of Peter in verse 19. He says, repent, turn, your sins will be blotted out. And times of refreshment will come from the Lord. times of refreshment and the restoration of all things. All these things come to us through God's servant, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the author of life. We see in verse 4 of chapter 4, you don't have it on your sheet, many heard and believed the gospel. And as I've mentioned, about 2,000 were added to the number, which makes about a church of about 5,000 people so far. And as we've seen, the gospel sends a community is a growing community. It is a community with power. As the gospel advances, it creates this community around it. Many people heard and believed and were added. Spirit of God, Word of God, building the people of God. But not all people who heard the good news were added to the number, right? There are plenty of people throughout uh, the book of Acts as we see as we go on uh, in the next few weeks, plenty of people who hear the good news and decide not to take it after all. Uh, as we see, uh, Peter and John, they go to the council. Uh, they give both barrels of the gospel. They say and stand up in front of the council and all these people with their, their knowledge and their theology and their, their degrees in theology and all that stuff, um, all these great religious leaders. And they say to them, without a shadow of doubt, salvation comes from no one else because there's no other name under heaven given to men by which you may be saved. Jesus, Jesus, it's all about Jesus. And the response of this council was not to be cut to the hearts and say, brothers, what must we do? As we saw on the day of Pentecost. The response of the council was to get on top of that. This stuff is spreading, they thought. It's got to be stopped. And so it says that they charged Peter and John not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And they made threats, probably threats of violence and threats of you know, we know where you live and, and, and we can get you and we can, we can make you unemployed and, and you, you know, we'll get you kicked out of your, your town. Made threats. Do not preach in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John replied, there is one thing that we cannot do and that we cannot stop talking about Jesus. Many believed when the gospel went out, but some heard and suppressed the truth, like the council. This is the first taste of opposition that we get in the book of Acts. It's a uh, forebear of of things to come because the good news, although it is amazing and is wonderful and, and, and full of benefits, is not taken as good news by by some because there is a cost involved here's the teaching folks as we come into land we cannot control or predict who will respond to the gospel with faith we can't predict who will suppress the truth of god's word that is god's call to make not ours but we don't get to predict We don't get to withhold our gospel based on prejudices or preferences or the chance that it might work with him or her or them. We are called to be liberal with the gospel. Yes, we pray for fruit. Yes, we anticipate growth. Yes, we lean into the spirit. Yes, we fasten ourselves on the gospel of Christ. And yes, we go out with his marching orders in our minds and the smile of God upon our heads and we pray your kingdom come. But we cannot make someone believe and come into the kingdom that is the work of the sovereign spirit so let that that us encourage us and challenge us where do we get this stuff from and with this i close where do we get this stuff from how do we have this power how do we get this faith how do we get this boldness chapter 4 verse 13 says When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is the council, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. Listen to this. And they recognised that they had been with Jesus. They recognised these two uneducated fishermen had been with Jesus. It was his presence. It was his training It was his life. It was his power. That's how they got so bold. That's that's where the gift of faith came from. That's where the power to heal came from. That's where their gospel conviction came from. These men have been with Jesus. And that's how we get it. We be with Jesus. We come to Jesus. Because in Jesus, his presence means life It means joy, it means power overflowing. Jesus now, this side of the cross, mediates his presence through his Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us. We saw that a few weeks ago, right, in the day of Pentecost. Through the Spirit, we come to Jesus, and by Jesus, we come to the Father. So if you are a believer in Jesus today, do you realize what you have living in you? Do you realize what is available to you if only you would ask your Heavenly Father? Do you know who you are? Do you know that you are in communion with the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? And if you're a believer in Jesus, you are up in that glorious trinity. It's a mystery, I give you that. It is a profound, wonderful, brain 
busting mystery. But it is the core of the gospel. Imagine what the book of Acts would look like today. In fact, I've heard it said that the book of Acts isn't a history book. Rather, we should think of it as the first few chapters of a script to a drama that is yet to be finished. It's as if we get the the prelude in chapters 1 through 28. The book of Acts is finished, but the story continues. And with each generation, it's as if God were saying, this is how it began. Now you take your place in my history. You take the book of Acts and you run with it and you carry it on and you keep pushing back and you keep advancing the gospel. Imagine what we could be part of if we hear the call of God. Give ourselves to the word and the spirit and see what he will do through us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the name of Jesus. We thank you that all that it represents, it's more than just a code word or a magic word. The name of Jesus, Lord, points us to the man who died on the cross. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for his perfect life. We thank you for his death on the cross. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for his ascension. And because of him, we are with you. And you are with us. So Father, help us to grasp something of the enormity of the gospel. Help us to take it deep inside ourselves. And help us to hear the challenge that you issue to your people to go and advance the gospel and push back the darkness and make Jesus famous. Lord, we want to do that in Foundation Church, and we know we have very little in terms of earthly resources. And yet we know that with you, all things are possible. So Father, use us. We pray that you would grant us a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to instruct our hearts and guide us and and push us further into Jesus. Because in him there is life and there is refreshment from the presence of the Lord. And so we pray for that refreshment where we are lacking, Lord, where we are dry, where we are tired. We pray for that refreshment. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.